I know uh, this moment can also be a little awkward as well. Listen, I am at heart an introvert, so thanks for hanging in there. But we do believe that these moments uh, are part of our worship, that actually the lost art of a conversation um, could actually be part of our worship as a community. We feel strongly about this. Um, it's so great to have you guys here. We're really excited about this season and, and just moment in the life of our church. It was really cool just a couple seconds ago to just poke my head in over with the kids and the students and just see that growing and thriving. And the, the kids' expansion that we did in the last number of months is just coming to fruition. So it's really cool to see that we can all come together and just gather together and be together and worship together. So good to see you. If we haven't met, I know I already said this, my name is Drew. We'd just love to meet you after the gathering. As well, there is an iPad at the back of the room that has a digital connect card on it. Absolutely no pressure, but if you want to stay in the loop with some of the things that are going on here, uh, you can fill that out. Just keeps you in the loop. We do this thing called Praxis Weekly, keeping everybody up to date. And as well, what we do is we just make a small donation to our friends at Mission Services here in London, just on your behalf, just to say thanks for being with us. And they do an incredible incredible job uh, just meeting so many different needs within our city. I think there's even a billboard, it goes up and down uh, around here that says that Mission Services has 200 beds this winter open to folks on the margins. And so we just love the work that they do, which is amazing. So uh, thanks for being with us. Doing okay? Everybody good? Deep breath. We are in a season in the church calendar called Lent. Uh, if, you have, if you have been with us, if you haven't, that's okay. We've actually been journeying the last little while from Advent in December all the way now to Pentecost Sunday in, at the end of May through something called the liturgical church calendar. Now, don't be afraid. It's not Jedi Knight. It's not weird. It's just this thing that has led the church for a number of years, hundreds of years, in leading them through different seasons in the church having its own calendar. And one of the things that we thought as a community is though we're pretty low church, uh, most of you like are here in plastic seats in like a, a venue that's not overly churchy, and we don't necessarily, most of us haven't grown up in like really high church environments, we do feel like as a Eucharismatic community, as a community that really wants to pay attention to some of the rootedness of what the church has been in, that we would just do this for a year, for six months or whatever, follow the church calendar. And so we've just been through the season of Epiphany. On Wednesday here, we had a fantastic time. Thanks for those of you that came. We celebrated Ash Wednesday together. Just to show you how not, we're not high church is we had dinner here and we kind of hung out. But then we also celebrated Ash Wednesday together just with prayer and repentance and worship, trying to bring those two things together, right? Our community that has a certain vibe and culture to it, and then bringing that together with the practices of observing Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the season called Lent, this 40-day period leading into Easter as we prepare our hearts for Easter and resurrection and all that that means. So this is kind of a picture for you where we've been, from Advent to Christmas to Epiphany, Ash Wednesday in there, and now we're going to spend some time just around the season of Lent. And I'm really quite excited about what this could potentially do for, uh, do for us. Now, this week, just because, you know, I am partly in an evangelical bubble, it's part of my job, I think, um, this week I heard a few different sayings that I found very, very interesting. Can I share them with you? Is that all right? Can I share them with you? 
So this is not like a David Letterman top 10 thing or anything like that. Back when late night talk shows were good, anybody with me? Any Letterman fans? And then it just went downhill. And some of you are like, you're cutting Jimmy Fallon. I am a little. I like him, but it's just not Dave Letterman, okay? Just my personal opinion. You can take that for what it is. But, you know, I hear, I often hear things thrown around on social media or in YouTube clips of pastor dudes and gals around that are very, very interesting. You know, I heard this week somebody say that God has a plan for you. Yes. Is it true? Absolutely it's true that God has a plan for us. I also heard this thrown around. You are going, this is great, this one was really good. You are going to live a large and expansive life. Yeah, baby. That one one feels good, doesn't it? You, my friends, are going to live a large and expansive life. What about this one? I heard this one this week. You, followers of Jesus, are made for more. Oh, gets the heartstrings, doesn't it? Now, as somebody who has four young kids, and I'm at a hockey arena five nights of the week, and I have, I'm leading a flourishing young community and family and life and all that, that actually gives me anxiety a little bit. Anybody with me? I'm made for more. I kind of feel like, oh my goodness, I, my life is pretty full as it is, but you, know, you were made for more. Or I even heard this one. This one was great this week. This person said, do you ever feel like you're just a Zamboni driver, (laughs) right? Well, you know, just like David Ayers, who was a Zamboni driver, but then he did great things. He changed the world. And you're just like, oh, that one is just, that's good, man. That makes me feel good. Now, listen, there's part truths in these sayings. And I'll also say this, there is not a hint of watchdog in me not a theological, there's people out there, this is kind of their deal. This is not me. I'm not a theological watchdog. I'm not trying to correct all the wrongs in the world. But it's interesting, just as I hear some of these, you know, the pop evangelical sayings that you hear thrown around, it's kind of interesting because I, at times, and I would imagine you too, have a hard time reconciling some of these things with this thing called the story of God, right? I hear some of these things, and then I think about the season that we're entering into as not just a church, but churches all across the world, and the particular story that we actually find in the Gospels and in the Bible. One, if we're honest, that's filled with pain and suffering, right? And betrayal. Like if you feel, and you've come this morning, you feel betrayed by somebody, The Son of God, the Messiah in flesh and blood, had some of the closest people to him walk off on him, betray him, walk away from him in the end. We have to wrestle through this thing of, welcome to church. I know, I don't mean to be a buzzkill here because I'm a pretty optimistic guy, but what about this thing like execution? Like we're going to, in a few weeks, celebrate execution, the Messiah killed in the most horrific way known, not just in the Roman world, on a Roman cross, was the most horrifying, shameful thing that could ever be done, but probably the most shameful thing that could be done throughout the course of human history when it comes to execution. So you have, I don't mean to be, again, a buzzkill by any means, but you have this story, life in the scriptures and the life of Jesus, and then you have a couple thousand years later, you have a guy 
on a bright, shiny mega church screen in suburban America, where you, I promise, you can almost literally smell the new carpet coming through the YouTube video, telling me that I'm going to have a large and expansive life. And there's some reconciling here, because again, there's part truths in that, but you get to a season like Lent, and Lent is actually a season in the church calendar that's pretty solemn. As we prepare, one of the things that Ash Wednesday does is it's a time to actually look inward and look at our own brokenness and our own pain. And sometimes we just don't talk about this a lot. And I'm at fault for this. Even in the history of our church, I, if you know me, I'm like a half glass full, like I'm a full glass full kind of guy. I'm a very optimistic person. But I've also learned as life comes at you over time that when you read the teachings and the life of Jesus, that there's some painful things. And also, I think one of the things that we're confronted with during the season is our own mortality, confronted with our own selves. And you know, we're facing this even at a kind of a macro level in culture. You know, these people that were almost saints that you hear do horrific things and you're like, man, in, our, in ourselves, in our brokenness, sometimes we neglect to talk about reality. And though we live in the hope of resurrection, and we'll get there on Resurrection Sunday, it's going to be amazing in here. There's going to be food. It's going to be a great party for resurrection. We're going to have baptisms. If you need to get baptized and would like to be baptized, we're going to do it here in this room. It's going to be phenomenal. But I think through Lent, we've got to kind of slow down and live and lean into what this season actually is. You with me? I think this is really important for us. And so Lent is a, a season of, for some, pain. Because part of that pain is rooted in giving things up. If you don't know, a lot of people over this 40-day period abstain from certain things. One of the things that we do as a community is we practice spiritual disciplines every season. And this isn't really new or unique for us. We're going to do it again right now. This is the season of fasting for us. And so we really encourage you to join in with us in fasting over the next six, day, uh, six weeks. Sorry. We encourage you to do one day a week from sundown to, uh, from sundown, to sundown, one day a week. Uh, we practiced this the last couple years, and it's a great opportunity during Lent to fast together. This particular discipline has radically changed and shaped my life. So I grew up in an environment, uh, great church, by the way, but an environment that said, we fast and we do things to get things from God. And then I've realized that's actually not what fasting has ever been in the scriptures. It's not this exchange where I do so I get. There's actually a number of different reasons why we fast. One of them is actually to grieve, to be drawn into the grieving of God. As God looks on the world in brokenness, we're kind of drawn into that. So if you want to join us with fasting, we do it, we practice this Wednesday night. You don't have to do it Wednesday, but from Wednesday evening to Thursday evening. We put together last year a ton of resources, including a seven-week podcast that we're just going to re-release online that you can listen to. If you wonder, ever wonder, why do people fast? Why do we do this? I actually share six or seven really, I think, good, really good. It was just really great, guys. You should listen to it. It's really good. Not at all. Um, but I think really good reasons why we actually actually join in on this particular practice. And again, it's, it's way more than just this exchange of like, hey, I'm going to do this so I can get lots of good stuff. It's actually not like that at all. So you can join in with us. There's other resources at mypraxis.church slash spiritual dash practice. All of our practices are on there if you want more resources, like recommended reading and all of that kind of stuff. We just want to lead this community in the way of Jesus, and that's the one way to do it. There's also, just before we jump in, 
I think um, I, we came across this. Many of you guys know uh, International Justice Mission, IJM. Actually, many of you guys know CAM who works there, and it's great, a uh, great organization. They are actually doing right now, it is called uh, the Give It Up for Freedom campaign. So actually for Lent, what they're encouraging people to do is to, whatever you're giving up, if you're actually abstaining from something during the 40 days, maybe it's sugar, oh, or coffee, oh, Anybody giving up coffee? Okay, because we're just like, have a serious, that's, that's amazing. That would be like serious intervention for me. But anyways, or whatever it is, um, you know, there's oftentimes a monetary value connected to these things. And so what IJM is encouraging, if you want to join in, is whatever you're giving up, put that monetary value back into relieving and releasing people from slavery. I think it's great. We'll have a link for you. Or if you want to talk to Cam after, this campaign is great. You can send out links to get people to support you as you kind of abstain from stuff. So Lent is just this time where we're giving up. There is a little bit of a difference between abstaining and fasting. Fasting is deeply connected to food and water. It's always been connected to food and water. But obviously, Lent has been a season where people give up stuff. And I think what a great way to actually, in a monetary way, to help others as part of our fasting. That's actually one of the things we talk about in the podcast is when you give up food, a lot of people, what they'll do during the season is actually give that money away to uh, relieve people from some of the injustices around the world. At any rate... Um, I just want to encourage us to just bring our pain to God in this moment. You know, when I fast, one of the things is when there's like the knots in the tummy at noon and, you know, when you're regularly eating, is just a sign and a reminder that God's presence is near and he's close. And that even the little hunger pains could be something that could bring a greater awareness of God in this season is important. Because pain is part of the journey. Now, I know it doesn't look like it, um, I'm a long-distance runner. I don't do near as much as I'd like to back 10 years ago. But I used to run marathons. And you're like, really? I know. I, I've been eating Captain Crunch for breakfast every morning this, this week. So it's, life has changed a little. But um, you're like, Captain Crunch? The greatest thing ever? Costco-sized Captain Crunch? Anybody with me? We could pray and go home on that one? Nobody. Okay. Just me. Um, so 10 years ago, I guess it was, Ava was, yeah, about 10 years ago, I ran my first marathon. I was running a ton every day and preparing for this marathon. And one of the things that I would do in the process of preparing for this marathon is that if it was like minus 10 out, I would bundle up and I would run in the cold and the slush and the sleet and the snow. Or if it was like 40 degrees in the summer, I would get my stuff on and Heather would be like, what are you doing? Everybody is like melting out there and I would run in extreme heat uh, throughout the summer. And one of the reasons was, is because when you can condition your body to run in minus 20 or plus 40 conditions, when you run that long race on that pretty moderate day in April or October, when mo most of these races are, you've conditioned yourself to run well. Pain, pain in the moment for future gratification. This is the Jesus story. This is actually the story of the early Christians and now for us today, is that there may be pain in this moment. It was interesting running my first marathon. I had never put more than 18 kilometers together. And if you don't know, a marathon is like, I think, 44 kilometers. Yeah, that's a problem. So in my first race, I'm running and I'm shutting down at about kilometer 20, 22. And there's people my grandparents' age, like my grandma's age, running by me at the end. 
Now, ask me how that went for my ego, my Enneagram 3 ego. Anybody want to talk about that? That was a moment. And I, <laughs> I remember at the end of it talking to this lady, again, my grandma's age, who ran by me and finished before me because I was shutting down. And she said, it's all about pain management. She was on her 20th, 25th marathon. And she just basically said to me, I know now because I've done this so long how to manage the pain. And I thought that's a beautiful picture of how we are to live this life as apprentices of Jesus. Pain and resistance in giving up social media or food or whatever it is for lengths of time, pain and resistance actually prepares us. This is what it's about. And so I just want to draw us into the season. I think this is going to be a beautiful time for some of us just to come around. And again, I'm not dogging anybody. I'm not a watchdog about those earlier comments that, you know, I heard this week. I just think sometimes it is hard to reconcile the moment in which we live, which is so different. The Jesus story, which seems to say some different things. God obviously has a plan for us. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But I actually think in a deeper way, we're drawn into the practices of God. Now, with that, one of the things we are doing on our Sunday teachings is we're following the lectionary and taking the New Testament text from the lectionary. And if you have a Bible and you want to open up, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. And if you flip on your phone and want to turn there, that's amazing. It will be on the screen as well, Romans chapter 5. Now, here's the thing with Romans. You ready? Romans is dense. It's a letter written by Paul. If you know, we've engaged a ton of Paul's letters over the last decade. Ephesians, Philippians, what else? I think we've done Galatians. We've done a ton of Paul's work. I love Paul's work. But honestly, can I be honest, just super honest with you? Romans scares me a little bit. Can I just get an amen? It's, if you know theology, it's pretty dense. Uh, it's Paul's probably, it's his magnum opus. And I've done a lot of reading actually over the last year on Romans, but and we'll get there probably at some point, but it is this magical work of literary genius, but it's also dense. And it takes time to actually walk through what Paul is saying. So what we're gonna read here is the assigned text in the lectionary, and it's actually, many scholars actually say of this particular text that it's Paul's most difficult passage to understand. So thanks for coming, welcome. Buckle up, we'll see how this goes. But this is what Paul says, Romans 5, verse 12. He says this, Therefore, just as sin, and this is, a, this, by the way, sorry, just as we get in, this is a little bit of a passage, so hang with me. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and de death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. Verse 13, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Verse 15, but the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Deep breath. Verse 17. 
For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Whew, all right, verse 18, we're almost there. Consequently, remember, this is written in Koine Greek. They're trying to translate in English. It's wordy. But consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the obedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made sinners righteous. Whew. Okay. Now, it's wordy. Again, there's a chasm here. But you know, one of the things I actually think, and I'm going to grab this here, one of the things I actually think that Lent does, and I think Paul gets to this here, in amongst all of the theology, one of the things that Lent does is it actually puts up for us a mirror. How do I do this? Hey, Apple, oh, here we go. So one of the things it does is it puts up for us a mirror. I think Lent is a season, there's the Apple guy, not anymore, it's all good. I got it, I got it sorted, it's all good. You know, imagine just for a second, just a mirror in front of you. One of the things that the season of Lent does is there's a little bit of exposing of our own hearts and our own lives, that even for Ash Wednesday, it's this kind of this breaking for us, this moment for us where we look at our own brokenness. And this is actually what Paul is actually talking about right here in this particular text. The mirror has been drawn out and there's really a parallel between the brokenness of humanity and then the work of Jesus and how those things relate together. Now, a caveat. I'm not sure it necessarily matters where you land on whether Adam was a historical figure or a prototype. I know there's tons of debate about this, and I don't think this is necessarily Paul's intention. Some believe that, you know, Adam and Eve were historical in the beginning. Others believe because Adam, Adam, the Hebrew name is actually translated humankind, and Eve is translated living, that Adam and Eve are kind of these prototypes that we read as a story. You're asking me, honestly, I'm just convinced that actually both of those things are true. I'm not going to push that on anybody here. I do think Jesus and Paul, I think they tend to push back to Adam and Eve as historical figures. But as well, these were figures that were obviously prototypes for all of humanity. But the thing here that Paul wants us to see in this particular text is he wants us to feel the parallel between Jesus and Adam. He wants to make it strikingly clear the difference between Adam and his failure in obedience and then the one that comes along and sets us free. His name is Jesus of Nazareth, who was completely obedient. Here's a little, and this can't be formulated, but here's a little comparison that I think just in all of this, this is what Paul is trying to communicate. So Adam, Adam, the language we get here in Romans 5 is that he's reigning over the kingdom of death. But Jesus is the one now, in comparison, in the parallel, that is reigning over the kingdom of life. Adam, Adam is the one where condemnation flows through his brokenness, through judgment. Now condemnation stems from the life of Adam. But Jesus now, what flows from his life is salvation. The word actually we read in the text here is justification, just 
a word that was used in that day and for us would kind of make, help us make sense of somebody being made right or justified, almost like in a legal sense. And the, the Bible doesn't just give legal sense for salvation, but this is a great picture of it. Out of Adam was what? Disobedience. The story we get, the early origin story, the Hebrew story is that Adam failed, but Jesus was obedient. The great Messiah that comes is the one that lived the life, the perfect life, the life that we couldn't live, the life that humanity couldn't live, and the life, obviously, that Adam in the beginning couldn't live. And then Adam's life was filled with trespass or offense, and now Jesus is the one that brings righteousness, right living. Make sense? I mean, the parallel text today in the, in the lectionary is actually, from the Gospels, is actually the story of Jesus being tested in the wilderness, which I think is brilliant to bring these two particular passages together. The picture we get through these texts is that Jesus did what Adam could not do. Jesus, the perfect one, he was the one that did what Adam could not do. Adam failed, humanity failed. I think Paul wants to get this deep down in our bones that Jesus is the perfect one, the one that took on himself everything for us and Adam failed and we need to look into the mirror. And it's interesting even in Paul's language because he comes around this and he says, dude, you can't even compare the two. Interesting what he says. He says, verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with, with the result of man's sin. So Paul's saying if, it's like a scale. God's love and grace compared to Adam's human sin, it's, it's uncomparable. But the weight of God's mercy and love for us is so good. He goes on, the judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. Verse 17, for if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man? Get that picture in your head. God's love, mercy, justice, everything far outweighs human's brokenness. And this is what Paul wants us to get. I know people theologize Romans 5 to the core and they draw all sorts of things out of it. Get a scale in your head. God's love and mercy, his forgiveness, his justification in bringing us in and saving us from ourselves far outweighs how often we screw up and the, the things that we do in life that are in brokenness. I think of my own life through this and I think of all the brokenness in my own life and then I weigh that against God's mercy and this is the picture that Paul wants to get. Make sense? What we're getting here in this text is almost like a reversal of the curse. This is, the, this is kind of the picture we should get. A reverse of the curse. Brokenness in Genesis 3 and now Jesus, the perfect one, even during Lent as we focus on the season, Jesus, this one, is the one through his work, his life, his teachings, his death, his burial, his resurrection, everything that culminates in him, he's reversing and undoing this curse. So funny because I'm a sports guy and throughout history, there's been some pretty amazing what would be known as curses, especially in uh, things like baseball. Um, I don't know if anybody's a Sandlot fan. Anybody a Sandlot fan in the house? Greatest movie of all time, probably. The greatest movie of all time. We watch this movie outside with my kids every year. It's amazing. Many of you guys know The Curse of the Bambino. Or throw up the Bambino. There he is. So if you don't know, in 1919, Babe Ruth, greatest baseball player at that moment in history, and some would argue of all time, was sold to the New York Yankees. And 
If you know, the Boston Red Sox were winning World Series in the 1910s, a lot of World Series, and they sold off Babe Ruth, and not until 2004 when they decided to film Fever Pitch at the same time did it. That's actually, that happened. That was crazy. You don't care, but they filmed Fever Pitch, and then the Red Sox won the World Series. It just, all the worlds collided. It was amazing. And in 2004, the Boston Red Sox finally, after how many years it was, whatever, 85 years, uh, won the World Series again. And many relate it to this idea of the curse of the Bambino, and in 2004, the curse was reversed. Then, some of you guys know the Chicago Cubs for, what was it? In 1908, they won the World Series, and for just under 100 years, finally in 2016, the curse of what was known as a very gentle baseball club every year. There's some Cub fans here. I watched Game 7 of the 2016 World Series with a a Cub fan. He's sitting here. He may have led the music this morning, and it was a pretty incredible moment when it went to extra innings, and we all like hugged and cried, and it was amazing that the curse had been reversed. Now, we're also praying for these guys, 1967, and we're just all cursed. We are all, we are all cursed. Though they've, they've, they've spun off three wins in a row. So, but, guys, when they win, when, they, when the Leafs win in my lifetime, which they will, me and, my boys are getting, me and my boys are getting in the caravan, and we're driving down the 401, and we will burn down Toronto with everybody else. And I'm not even ashamed. I may lose my job. That's okay. But we will be there flipping cars on fire. I'm just preparing you now. It's going to be amazing. You're like, so lawless. If, the Leafs, if this curse is reversed, it will be amazing. Picture that Paul, amongst all the theology in Romans, and we may get there someday, I just want us to catch first week of Lent, is that everything that was undone by Adam, everything that was the the garden, God's flourishing world with life and humanity in it, everything that was undone because of brokenness and sin by Adam's rebellion, what Paul wants to see is it's being made right again in Jesus. This is the story that we're caught up in. Everything that's bad will be turned and flipped on its head. Every propensity that Drew Fess has to screw things up, to look in the mirror and to look at circumstances and situations that in my own humanity, the mistakes and the brokenness that I make, Jesus is making everything right. And this is the weight, this is what's weighted against each other. And this is what Paul wants us to feel deep down in our bones. You may have come to this place this morning feeling like a screw-up, where things just aren't, the, the life that you're living isn't what you thought it would be. I think Paul would invite us into this idea that humanity's broken, and that's okay, because we follow a Messiah who lived the life that we couldn't, who's done the things in defeating sin and death that we couldn't do. And this is really good news. So we put up the mirror to expose our brokenness, to expose our sin. And again, even those statements that we made in the beginning, I think a lot of times in kind of pop evangelicalism, I think a lot of this is missed. It's like, hey, you're going to have an amazing life. You're made for more. You're going to conquer. You're going to do great things. All of those things are true. But I actually think the mirror needs to come up for us this morning and for us to look into our own brokenness so that we see on the other side how good Jesus is. I'll leave you with this. It's interesting. Five times Paul uses this phrase translated from Greek into English, probably in your Bible, as much more. Five times he uses this phrase, much more. Here's what I think. I think what Paul is trying to communicate here 
is that we've gained much more in Christ than we ever lost in Adam. That's what I want us to feel this morning. First week of Lent. We've gained in Jesus and his work and his perfection and his life. Way more, I know we've talked about brokenness, but we've gained way more, this is the good news, than we ever lost in Adam. God created this world in shalom and rhythm, wanting humans to flourish with them. There's been some blips along the way, but you also need to know that the life Jesus lived then draws us into life with him forever, forever, walking in the cool of the day. Just as Adam and Eve, humanity, was walking in the cool of the day with Yahweh in the beginning, the telos of this story is being drawn in that no matter how bad Adam screwed this thing up and no matter how bad I screw this thing up, the telos, the end goal, is that we've gained more than we could ever think or imagine. And so the mirror for us doesn't just kind of expose ourselves, our own brokenness. But you know what's crazy is when we actually, you're like, whoa, sorry, I'm sorry, everybody's seeing it. It's kind of... <laughs> Just get closer. <laughs> like, I'm never coming to this church again. <laughs> when we lift up the mirror, not only do we see our own brokenness, but I actually think in light of what Paul is saying here now, is that when we lift up the mirror, we see Jesus. How often did Paul use this, use this word righteousness? That Jesus is our righteousness. So there's like this dual function. We, we put this mirror, Lent is the season that exposes again, even around Ash Wednesday, my own brokenness. But at the same time, I look into that mirror and I see Jesus who covers me and covers my sin, deals with my brokenness and moves me forward. And yes, we're made for more and for a flourishing life in Jesus. But I think we actually start by looking in this mirror and looking at Jesus and his righteousness. And I actually think this is what Lent is about. It's a season where we're open to the reality. And that's why on Wednesday we came around these prayers of repentance, because I just know myself, I need that. But I look into that mirror and I see Jesus. You with me? My, my prayer, my hope for this community, as we go out into the world this week, you would look and you would see that you, are, you and I are covered by the work of Jesus the Messiah. And so brothers and sisters, the table is open. Spence and the guys are going to come back. If you're new here, we just want to invite you into worship. We don't just close down our gatherings. Hey, it's time to go home. One of the things we love to do is just respond. Spence is going to lead us. He's, these guys do such a great job at leading us. And at the back, there's just a table with, it's juice, it's not wine. It's juice, crackers. There's even gluten-free option on the left side for those of you that need that. And we're just going to take some time. And when you feel like it's best, um, you can move to the table if you want. If you don't, there's no pressure at all. But this is a sign for many of us who are a part of this community here. This is kind of like the lifeline for us that he's among us, his presence is among us. And as we take the bread and cup, it's just a reminder to us of his work and his power in us. And everything that we've talked about this morning kind of culminates into that. And so...